We get most of our saturated fat from meat and dairy, and we get to much of it. Saturated fat's not bad. It's not evil. You know what's bad? What's reliably bad? Imbalance. Everything about nature, biology, physiology, whether it's the human body or the ecosystem at large, favors balance. If your diet is prone to an excess of saturated fat, saturated fat becomes bad because more of it makes an excess worse. In other words, compounds the imbalance. Another good example of this same issue, Simon, would be sodium. We all tend to think of sodium or salt as bad. Why is it bad? Because most of us get too much. You get too much, getting more is indeed bad. But the simple reality is sodium is an essential nutrient. If you don't eat sodium, you become hyponatremic, you get confused, you have seizures, and then you die. Balance. That's Dr. David Katz. And this is episode 108 of The Proof Podcast. Here we are. We had a little break there, didn't we? I hope you're well. Safe to say, at my end, the the book editing is in full flight. Two years in the making, I think two years, maybe two and a half years, and the final 20 days or so to go before it's all polished up and and submitted. I've been diving deeper into the science, uh, deeper than ever before, connecting with more and more experts in, in various fields and and trying to bring you something that is both insightful and enjoyably challenging. Enjoyably challenging is how I'm putting it anyway, both for me during the writing process and for you on the other end. That's the goal. Anyhow, I'm going to keep this introduction fairly short today. For new listeners, I should probably introduce myself. Welcome. It's great to have you here with us. My name is Simon Hill. I'm the host of this show, physiotherapist and nutritionist. And that book that I just mentioned is being published with Penguin February 2021, about seven months or so from this recording. Everything I do here with the podcast and on social media is about helping all of us become more mindful and conscious of the way that we eat. It's a a non-judgmental, non-preachy space to talk about diet, to talk about being mindful of our decisions, and really an opportunity to sit down with inspiring people from all over the world, doctors, nutritionists, dietitians, athletes, people who have overcome chronic disease, and generally folks that are working hard to create positive change in the world. And today is no different an episode that I have been looking forward to for such a long time now with David Katz, MD. David and I have been in email contact for a long while talking about science and, and, and various studies. And as I say early in this conversation, we've been trying to connect in person in the States a few times, but it just hasn't worked out. As regular guests will know, I much prefer doing these conversations in person. Uh, One, because it makes for a better conversation and flow rather than doing it over Zoom with the occasional Wi-Fi lags that inevitably result in some awkward pauses or speaking over one another. And two, because the personal element is much better when you get to know someone properly, it allows that conversation to sometimes go that little bit deeper. But given the circumstances, I must say the remote podcasts are working out okay I hope you think so anyway, and and this really, really was a very enjoyable conversation. 
David is a medical doctor and a man with more degrees than most. Let's just leave it at that. He's also the founding director of Yale University's Yale Griffin Prevention Research Center, the past president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, and the founder and president of the True Health Initiative. Above all, he's one of the greatest voices of reason and clarity that I have come across in a space that is littered with confusion tactics, bias, and hidden agendas. So with that said, it's an honor to welcome Dr. David Katz to the show for the first time and to be able to share this exchange with you. You're in for an absolute treat. I hope you enjoy it and I'll see you on the other side. David Katz, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Great to be with you, Simon. Thank you. And I, I will I will laugh this one off. It's uh, third time lucky here. Um, I've, I've got, I've got coffee in hand and it's 7am. So, um, thank you for, for, for sticking with me for the, for the third round. Yeah, we'll get it sorted. <laughs> and maybe we can talk about coffee and if there's any science on coffee and if I should or shouldn't be drinking it, but off, off the top there, there's a lot that we can explore. You're a guest that I've wanted to connect with for a long time. I think we were, we were going to try and touch base in, in person, uh, a little while ago, things didn't work out, but here we are during this pandemic and, and timing has worked out. So firstly, it's a, it's an honor to have yourself on the show. So thank you for, thank you for joining me. Um, I think, thank you. I, I hope the, the, the listeners really understand how fortunate they are to, to be able to, you know, have access to you because your work, when I look at the nutrition science space, the, the science appears to be, you know, very clear and, and certainly clear enough to, to give us really good information about what we should and shouldn't eat um, or what we should eat more of and what we should eat less of. There is a lot of confusion and there is different headlines and there's different camps and there's different diet tribes and there's a lot of this noise which can lead the everyday person to sort of just throwing their hands up in the air and thinking this is all a bit too hard. No one understands what we should eat. and. What I love about your work is that you understand what science can and can't test. You understand that there, there there's unlikely to be one study that ever tells us exactly the best diet, but you are able to look at the nuance in the science and then very eloquently break that down and communicate that to the everyday person to to describe what the characteristics of a of a healthy diet look like. So big fan of your work and there are there is a plethora of topics that we could talk about today. I mean, you wrote a, a seven hundred plus page, or, <laughs> or, or one of your books was seven hundred plus pages. But what I would really, what I think would be really useful for the listeners, first time that you're on this show, is to talk about why sometimes this conversation just around macronutrients, uh, saturated fat versus um, unsaturated, or talking about carbohydrates can sometimes distance us from what is most important in, in, in the characteristics of a, of a diet. And then also some of the sort of important things that we need to think about in, in science when we're re- reviewing scientific papers like the, the replacement nutrient or instead of what. So before we sort of deep dive into all of that, which is you know content that you talk about all the time, how about uh, by way of introductory, you tell us about True Health Initiative, uh, a little bit about your path into nutrition science and, and why you're so passionate about this area. 
Well, Simon, thanks for the kind words. Great to be with you. Uh, glad we're 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 through over the the technical hubs at the start here. That's all good. We're away. <laughs> I think I think that was a nice icebreaker. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, and and nice to be with your audience. Um, pleasure to connect with everybody for the first time. I look forward to being back as a regular. We'll be old friends then. Uh, but for now, uh, by way of intro, let me answer your last question first. Why the focus on diet? So, and forgive me for a little bit of ethnocentrism. What's true about the U.S. is is true about Australia, you know, more or less. It's true about, frankly, all countries in in the developed world. But I know the data best here at home and in the United States. Diet is the single leading predictor variable for all cause mortality, total chronic disease risk. Full stop. Single leading predictor variable. In other words, diet quality as compared to any other thing you could measure, explains more of the total chronic disease burden in our country now, more of the premature deaths than anything else. It's the single leading killer. And it's interesting, Simon, to have this discussion during a pandemic, which of course has the world's attention fixated and everybody's afraid of what COVID can do and deaths from COVID. And you know, we don't make it through a news cycle without hearing about the latest updates on deaths from COVID. And here in the U.S., and we stand out as you know the greatest boondoggle amidst a global pandemic mostly handled very badly, uh, we've had something like 135,000 deaths, uh, and that's terrible and, and tragic. And obviously, my heart goes out to all of the families affected, and I know some of them, of course. However, diet, diet quality, kills 500,000 people in the United States prematurely every year. It did it last year. It will do it next year. It's been doing it year in, year out. And when it isn't killing people prematurely, poor diet quality is taking life from years by causing chronic disease. So minimally, you look at the toll of this pandemic in our country and the toll of bad diet, which is something we have complete control over, is at least four times greater in a single year and over a span of years orders of magnitude greater and totally fixable. And so, you know, I, I went into medicine because I wanted to save lives and, and protect health. You really can't be in a space that's devoted to uh, a particular outcome and not address the single leading predictor of that outcome. And, and this, this was already apparent. It wasn't quite as salient when I started, but it was already apparent then. So I, I trained, I did, completed med school in 1988, finished my training in internal medicine in 1991, uh, went to Yale in 91 to uh, do a second residency in preventive medicine because I, you know, after having done three years of internal medicine and seeing so many people filling hospital beds with horrible stuff they never needed to get, I said, you know, I can't spend the rest of my career putting out fires and leaving, you know, the, the, the charred earth that never needed to be there. These people could have been healthy, but their only hope of being healthy was 10 years ago with preventive strategies, recognizing vulnerability, fixing it before it gets this bad. You know, after they're in the hospital with their cancer, their stroke, their heart disease, et cetera, we can patch them up. But I, I kind of felt, Simon, that my training in internal medicine was learning how to be one of the king's horses and one of the king's men. You know, our job was basically do the best you can with Humpty Dumpty after the, the, the eggshells cracked and <laughs> he's toppled off the wall and it's a mess. And we were like that, you know, we can patch people back up, but we couldn't restore complete vitality. I wanted to do that. So trained in preventive medicine, public health, uh, focused on diet nutrition because it was clearly among the leading predictor variables back then, a quarter century ago. 
And we come forward uh, those 25 plus years to now, and it's the single leading predictor variable for all-cause mortality. So that's that's the arc. That's why I do what I do. I want to add years to lives, life to years, and the focus on nutrition because, you know, other than when in the midst of a pandemic, and that has everybody's attention, diet is the single best way to exert a major influence on years in life, life in years for the global population today. So something that I've been thinking about and no doubt you have during this pandemic is the human sort of psyche in terms of what we're motivated by with regards to this conversation of say a pandemic and and I know that you're not you're not minimizing the issue of a pandemic you're just stating the the facts that these chronic diseases like cardiovascular disease are killing more people but how do we how do we sort of move past that almost ancestral, I guess, notion to to just worry about survival and the immediate and, and get to a place where the average person is really thinking about three or four or five decades in, in advance in terms of their diet, or is it a case of, of really, uh, as society is just changing the environment to make that the default? Both. And, um, it, you know, it sounds like maybe you read the column I wrote, Simon, called Two Pandemics Are Better Than One, and I, I, I juxtaposed the hardwiring of our nervous systems and the fight and flight response to the the way we react to chronic disease. So part of the problem with type 2 diabetes, heart disease, cancer, stroke, dementia is they stalk us in slow motion. And as you suggest, the, the human nervous system is a product of evolutionary biology. Uh, the fight or flight response and the tingling of our adrenal glands all hardwired to react to things that stalk us fast. Uh, seconds, minutes, at most hours, uh, you know, rarely anything extending to days. So forget about years, forget about decades, forget about lifetimes. We don't see that. It's too slow to see. Uh, so, you know, literally the, the, the working of our nervous system response to threat is linked to temporality. And we perceive things in a particular timeline. It evokes a response. If you go outside that timeline, if it's too fast or too slow, it doesn't really evoke that visceral response. You can think about it, so it can still evoke a cognitive response. So one of my answers is actually COVID is in a sense, and and it's maybe paradoxical, but true nonetheless, doing us a favor. It's taking all of the chronic liabilities you and I have devoted our careers to and turned them into an acute threat that actually makes everybody care right now. You know, people... You tell them you, you could alter your lifestyle and massively reduce your risk of heart disease in 10 years or diabetes in 10 years. And the average response is, okay, I'll get to that tomorrow or next week or next month or next year. You know, there's no urgency attached to that until, sadly, after the MI, after the stroke, after the cancer. And then, of course, everybody gets religion. And what we refer to in preventive medicine as the teachable moment all too often comes in the aftermath of preventable calamity, which is one of the frustrations of, of a career in this space is, you know, everybody you want to help before bad stuff happens is hard to help until bad stuff happens. But what COVID is doing is making people acutely aware of their risk for a bad outcome from this infectious disease, which could get them tomorrow or next week. And frankly, the stuff that increases the likelihood of a bad outcome other than age is all the same modifiable stuff that we're modifiable stuff that we're trying to fix all the time. It's hypertension, dyslipidemia, obesity, type two diabetes, metabolic syndrome, bad diet, lack of physical activity, things that 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 impair your immune system response. So you know, essentially, 
that's the stuff we're always about in lifestyle medicine, preventive medicine. But it's a hard sell because, as you say, people want immediate gratification. So one answer is we need to be strategic opportunists. And in a bizarre kind of way, two concomitant pandemics are better than one because the one is shining a spotlight on stuff that's even more important but tends to be neglected. That's answer one. Answer two is, you know, as I said, the, the slow motion threats that matter most don't evoke a visceral response, but they can evoke a cognitive response. And, and a perfect example is wealth. There's nothing about evolutionary biology that programs us to save for a lifetime, to worry about, you know, retirement, to uh, worry about our kids' education, to, you know, worry about all the things that responsible adults worry about, the reason they don't spend all the money they earn today. You, know, you get the most immediate gratification if you took all the money you had in the world and spent it on stuff you want today. Uh, but very few responsible adults do that. So one of the things I've recommended for many years is I've thought about this problem. How do we get people to care about the, the longitudinal value of vitality is maybe we can talk people into the simple proposition of treating health a bit more like wealth. You know, health is something we tend to neglect and ignore until the aftermath of a crisis. But most responsible people don't do that with their money. If you make any, you spend some, you protect some, you think about nurturing it, you think about investing, you think about trying to grow what you have, you think about the value of it today and for the long term, you think about sharing it with people you love, you think about paying it forward, you want to bequeath it to your children. Well, why not do all of that with health? Because health offers all of that opportunity. Health can be a family value. Health can be something you share with the people you love. Health can be something you bequeath to your children by your actions, by your example, on and on it goes. So I, I think we can get past the visceral deficiencies, if you will, by using these large homo sapien brains and, and counting on a more cognitive response. But you are also right to say, ultimately, the remedy here is not to lean so hard on individuals. I am aware of no population anywhere in the world where longevity and vitality are the norm because doctors provide really swell clinical counseling. You know, I've never, never heard that story, right? So the places around the world where people live the longest and enjoy the most vitality and then in the fullness of time go gentle into that good night, you know, dying peacefully in their sleep rather than with tubes sticking out of them in the ICU, it's because of culture. And, uh, you know, when I was president of the American College of Lifestyle Medicine, the platform of the college was mostly lifestyle in medicine. In other words, the clinical practice of lifestyle medicine. I, I used my presidency to say we need a dual platform. Lifestyle in medicine, absolutely. So all the stuff we can do is, as enlightened clinicians, but also lifestyle as medicine, as they do it in the blue zones, you know, where people live the longest and have the best health. It's not a clinical enterprise. It's a cultural enterprise. Lifestyle is the medicine. Culture is the spoon to make it go down. So eating well is the norm in society. Being physically active is the norm in society. Not smoking is the norm in society. Not drinking excessively. Getting enough sleep. Not being stressed out. Having good social interactions. Feet, forks, fingers, sleep, stress, love. It's a six-cylinder engine of lifestyle is medicine. So feet, physical activity, forks, dietary patterns, fingers, not doing this or too much of this. Sleep, getting enough, stress, not getting too much, love, strong social interactions. We are social animals. That formula is a cultural formula. So 
you know, if you live in a culture, and both of us do, where the healthy choices are not the default choices, you know, sadly, we have to rely on our own cognitive responses. We can treat health more like wealth. There's a lot we can do. But ideally, it would be a cultural enterprise. Yeah, particularly to to hit the sort of the mainstream where where not everyone is either uh, privileged enough to to have the education or to have the time like you and I are to to sort of sit down and, and try and make sense of all of this when there is a, a whole lot of confusion out there. It, it can be a, a time-consuming process. What I really like about what you just said then is that this sort of double pandemic, it, it may also give greater reason to governments to co- focus and concentrate on saying, hey, let's actually work hard to get our community healthy. Let's get healthy. Yeah, I haven't seen it happening, Simon, but it, it absolutely, if grownups were in charge, absolutely, it's the ideal time to say, let's make our population healthy. Let's reduce, let, let's do all we can to empower everybody to make sure there's, there's almost no poorly controlled hypertension, no poorly controlled diabetes. Because, you know, it's not just the presence or absence of these conditions, because you can't throw a light switch and make stuff go away. But there's a overwhelming evidence from the states, from China, showing that the degree of glycemic control and diabetes makes a massive difference in the likelihood of, of severe COVID cases of, of death. Uh, the degree of control of hypertension makes a massive difference. By the way, one other thing I wanted to say, you know, back to your question about how do we get people there from here. You know, I agree with you that, you know, you, you, you want to be able to address everybody and not everybody has the privilege we have. Not, you know, again, the people who most need help with their health are not tuning into podcasts about health, right? I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're outside that, that inner sanctum where this is part of the discussion all the time. But even so, if we think in terms of not just willpower, which I think we emphasize too much, but skill power, which doesn't get nearly enough attention, there are things that take a bit of learning and a bit of effort that we expect pretty much everybody to do. Sadly, not everybody gets there, but very, very large percentages of populations do. And I'm thinking of things like reading and writing, to some extent, arithmetic, riding bicycles, but, you know, we take for granted our, our glib and blithe use of the alphabet. But, you know, back when we were in kindergarten, it was hard. You know, I mean, it, there, was, there was an investment. And you had to learn how to work with all those damn letters and figure out how to put them together. And, and then, you know, you climb the steep part of the learning curve. And then you had a skill that was invaluable for the rest of your life. And we expect everybody more or less to do that. Now, again, sadly, not everybody does, but, you know, overwhelmingly, we, we cultivate at least a, a basic level of literacy. Well, again, if, if we think of health like wealth or even health like uh, reading and writing, you know, just basically health literacy is something that everybody needs, particularly people living in cultures that don't make the healthy choices the defaults. You know, it's a bit like learning the alphabet. You could learn how to shop for healthy food. You could learn how to orchestrate physical activity into your routine. It could begin very early in the public school system. And we would basically just acknowledge this is a skill everybody needs. A little bit of effort in the beginning, lifetime of benefit. Small investment, massive return. So again, I favor a cultural revolution that makes health the default. But there are various ways we could think about getting there from here while waiting for the world to change. Yeah, I I mean I, I completely agree with that. It's that that making sure that the education then matches their environment. And you know, I think here in Australia, I think 42% of calories are from ultra processed foods. I think in the states it might be 60%. 
Um, <laughs> and again, some, sometimes, sometimes in these diet conversations where people are arguing over the addition of a little bit of oil or whether it's right, a uh, yeah, plant it, predominant or plant exclusive, but right, <laughs> right. who cares? I mean, yeah, yeah I mean, our, our problems are so much bigger than that. I mean, we can get people to eat actual food. Uh, you know, then we could start having those debates about which version of actual food is, is the best, but right. We can't even get people to eat real food. Yeah. We've, yeah. we've got big problems. Let's get into the science and, and talk about those characteristics that we spoke about at the, at the beginning through all of your, your research and, and your writing, when you sort of sit back and if someone was to say to you, David, tell me what the, the optimal human diet is. How, how would you explain that? Well, well, someone has said exactly that to me. Uh, so it, in 2013, I guess it was, the editors at Annual Review of Public Health said, we, we'd like you to do a review paper entitled, Can We Say What Diet is Best for Health? And you know, we want you to suppress any native bias you may have, follow the evidence where it leads and answer the question. And, and I did. And to the best of my knowledge, it's the most downloaded paper that that journal has ever published. Uh, wow. You know, essentially the answer was yes and no. So the, the question is, can we say what diet is best for health? If by that you mean, can we say whether this narrowly defined prescriptive diet, let's say, you know, some specific version of the Mediterranean diet is better or worse than the DASH diet is better or worse than some specific version of whole food plant-based, you know, is better or worse than an idealized paleo. No, we can't because think of the science you would need to take an optimal Mediterranean diet, an optimal flexitarian diet, an optimal vegan diet, and prove decisively that one is better than the other. You'd basically, since we know that dietary influence begins in utero, you'd really want to randomly assign pregnant women. And you would want to then assign the pregnant women to these different diets. And again, they'd all have to be comparably optimized. So it's a fair comparison. You know, you can't do a bad Mediterranean to a good low-fat plant-based. You know, whatever you're Whatever diets you put together, you put together with the same quality standards. And then when the women give birth, their, their offspring would be the study participants. And let's keep in mind now that we have everybody on diets that are massively better than what most people are eating. So everybody's going to do fairly well. And the question is who does the best. But when everybody does fairly well and bad outcomes are rare, the differences are small. And when differences are small in research, you need massive sample sizes and huge amounts of time. So we probably need, oh, I don't know, 50,000 pregnant women randomly assigned and then all of their offspring. And then we need to follow them for long enough to see differences for one, which are unlikely to happen in childhood. But the influence of diet begins certainly in childhood. So we want them assigned from birth. And then we need to follow them long enough so that they do or don't develop chronic disease. So that's what, 50 years. But then we also really want to know if we're going to say which diet is best, how does it affect longevity and life expectancy? So we need a lifetime. So we need 50,000 people randomly assigned to different diets for 100 years. Mm, do that's not a lot, hold, do that's not a hold lot of breath. convincing. Yeah, it's uh, just never, never going to happen. Yeah. So you know, in this paper, we said you know, the science required to say that one narrowly defined, branded, my diet can beat your diet is, is the best, is never going to happen. But if you, if you think of the question as meaning, can we say in general? What basic dietary pattern is best for homo sapiens? Definitive, decisive, easy, absolute, yes, real food, not too much, mostly plants, as Michael Pollan put it, famously and succinctly in seven words, wholesome foods, plant predominant, sensible combinations, mostly time-honored combinations. 
And so, you know, basically, if your diet is largely made up of whole, unprocessed or minimally processed vegetables, fruits, grains, beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, and if when you're thirsty, you mostly drink plain water, you cannot go too far wrong. That is the theme of the optimal diet for Homo sapiens we know beyond the shadow of a doubt. And then everything else really is debate about variance on the theme. And so that was how we answered the question. Beautiful. I mean, what's interesting about that is that what you just described at the end, I know you use the word absolute, but I guess in terms of uh, the, the lay person and what we see in books all the time is that an absolute diet in terms of the keto diet or the paleo diet or the blah, blah, blah is the best diet. It's almost like absolute sell because people are, are looking for that very simple, clear message as opposed to uh, some of this nuance that we're discussing, which more accurately reflects the science. So, so exactly. So two problems. One, you know, absolute claims about supremacy are, are always a sales pitch. Two, you know, th- those claims are often emphasizing a, a banner, a brand, a rubric. And, and the simple reality is that any of those diets, so pick paleo, you know, a lot of people wave the paleo banner and say, I eat paleo. And what it means is they eat a lot of bacon and pepperoni. Well, there was no paleolithic pepperoni. It's absurd. You know, our Stone Age ancestors did eat meat, but they ate the meat of wild animals because there were no domestic animals. They hunted. And, you know, how much they hunted is a matter of substantial debate among paleoanthropologists. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm an amateur. I read the literature, but, you know, I, I don't presume to say most of them would agree, though, that it varied. And, you know, there are probably times and places and groups of Homo sapiens that ate a fair amount of meat. And there were times and places and groups of Homo sapiens that ate re- relatively little meat. They probably all got at least 50% of their calories from plants, and, and many of them probably got more. So wherever we look at our ancestral dietary pattern, there was a lot of wild plant eating. And there was wild animal eating, and the wild animals were in turn eating wild plants. And what's routinely overlooked by people who say, you know, I eat paleo and have, you know, hamburgers without the bun is the, the difference in the fundamental composition of, you know, the flesh of wild animals like what our ancestors may have eaten and the, the flesh of the domestic animals that are mass produced in factory farms today. It's absolutely night and day. Just a very quick example. I know this is, this is a group that prefers to talk about plant eating and frankly, so do I. But just so we're clear on this, because it, you know, it's part of the rebuttal. So in the, the literature on Paleolithic nutrition, and one of the illustrations used is, okay, the kind of meat our ancestors ate is probably a lot like antelope. If we, had, we look for a modern animal that's kind of like the, the animals they ate. So compositionally, an antelope steak derives about 7% of its calories from fat, 7%. Almost none of it's saturated, vanishingly low levels of saturated fat. And there's a substantial amount of omega-3. In other words, omega-3 only is fish oil because we've domesticated it out of everything else. It used to be widely distributed in, in both plant and animal foods. Compare that to a fairly average steak from a factory farm, grain-fed beef steer. And um, about 35% of the calories come from fat. Much of it's saturated. None of it's omega-3. I mean, they're, they're just completely different foods, right? Five-fold difference in fat content, complete difference in the kind of fat, and those compositional differences extend to many other nutrients as well, but fat makes the case. So, you know, again, there are many problems with this my diet can beat your diet beauty pageant nonsense, 
But among them is the fact that people substitute the name of a diet for the substance of it. And you tell me paleo and I'd say, I have no idea what you mean. You might mean a, a wide variety of wild plants and occasional venison and wild salmon. And frankly, if you mean that, it's probably a fantastic diet. Is it better than vegan? We haven't done the comparison to say. Personally, I doubt it, but we, you know, we honestly don't know in terms of, specifically in terms of human health outcomes. In terms of environmental footprint, I think vegan is the best. And by the way, just a quick digression, I like to look at diet through three lenses, direct effects on human health, how we treat our fellow creatures who have all the same rights to be here that we do, and impact on the overall environment, planet, climate, aquifers, biodiversity in general, et cetera. You look through those three lenses and the argument for an overwhelmingly plant predominant to plant exclusive diet is pretty much a slam dunk. I agree. And, and, and that, you know, I think we should be looking through all three lenses. I, I routinely say I don't think you can be a health professional in 2020 and not advocate frequently and fiercely for the health of the planet. There are no healthy people on a ruined planet. And all life, I think, has the same intrinsic value, the same intrinsic rights. You know, it, it's always stunned me, Simon, how fascinated everybody seems to be about the possibility of life on other planets. We've got the most fantastic, extraordinary, magnificent treasure of biodiversity on this planet, and we routinely squander it. Uh, hello? Makes no sense. So anyway, you know, I, I, you look through those three lenses and, and, and the argument for being plant predominant, plant exclusive, as I say, is overwhelming. But again, you know, the, the, the general problem with these diets is you can put them together well, you can put them together badly, and the banners, the, the labels that people apply don't make the distinction. And a lot of people hide under the label, paleo diet's been shown to do blank, I eat paleo, what it really means is I like bacon and eat it all the time. You know, again, there was no paleolithic bacon, there was no paleolithic pastrami, there were no paleolithic hot dogs. Something that just resonated with me that you said then, and I think it's a really important point, is that, you know, I, I don't eat animal products myself, but when I go through the literature and and I'm look, I'm searching for people that like yourself that are a voice for reason, or when I'm actually reviewing the primary research, one of the things I write at the top of the pages is what's your bias, and I'm just constantly just trying to make sure that you know I understand the environmental impacts and I understand the animal welfare impacts, but I I do want to still look at the science independently for what it is. Um, the, the strength of the argument is there, as you said, for those other aspects to to at least significantly reduce, if not exclude, animal products for people who can. But one thing I do I do find is that, and we can talk about all different types of diets here, but if we look at say the 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 vegan community, sometimes it is positioned as this panacea that is definitely better than these other diets, as you say that you can't really scientifically say that. And I think some of that comes down to, I mean, a few reasons. It, it, it can be that someone just, you know, a- anything for the greater good and, and whatever that end result is. But secondly, within the science, what a diet is being compared with is so important. And, there, you know, there are a lot of trials looking at, at vegan diets, but as you say, it may in most of them, it's just being compared to one sort of comparison diet and it's not giving us a, a true reflection of uh, a vegan diet versus all the other healthy diets out there. Well, yeah. So th- there's a lot there to unpack, Simon. 
so, you know, again, first of all, the bias issue is very important. There, there are people that I, I really love, colleagues I really respect, icons in this space who say some things that are just fundamentally wrong when they get to a podium. Uh, I won't name names. I don't want to name names. But, you know, again, this is an audience that would certainly know these people. And I've been on panels with them and at conferences with them and spoken side by side with them. And I've, I've heard people who have a particular predilection for a, a low-fat whole food plant-exclusive diet tell their audience why extra virgin olive oil is cardiotoxic and cite one study while ignoring the vastly greater literature linking extra virgin olive oil to health benefit. And that's, you know, it's a bias. It's a bias about one, not, not just whole food plant exclusive, but one particular version of whole food plant exclusive. Okay. Uh, and then I've heard people do the same and tell their audience that, that wild salmon is, is toxic for people because they're opposed to people eating any animal foods. And, you know, the reality based on the epidemiologic evidence is eating wild salmon is certainly toxic for the salmon, but we, you know, we, we do not have evidence that it's toxic for people. But to be fair, absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So, you know, is eating wild salmon, if you're comparing the addition of it to an optimal plant exclusive diet, is it detrimental? We don't know. So in other words, which is better for human health outcomes? optimal pescatarian, so plant-predominant diet with fish and only the best fish, versus optimal vegan, meaning whole food, plant-exclusive, no fish, which is better? I don't know. And this will bring us start to bring us back in the direction where you started, where, you know, instead of what? So if you eat wild salmon and the baseline diet is the typical Australian diet, the typical American diet, the typical diet's junk. As you said, you know, 42% of your calories come from junk food, 60% of our calories come from food, whatever those numbers actually are, they, they change all the time, but it's high. Well, is wild salmon better than any of that hyper-processed frankenfood? Hell yeah, easy yes. So, you know, it's got whatever, almost whatever it displaces from your diet, whether it's hamburgers, hot dogs, pepperoni, bacon, or hyper-processed junk food, wild salmon is going to be better for you. So, you know, is that why all of our epidemiology says, you know, fish looks good because of what it's pumping out of the diet? Is it the benefit of the omega-3, the benefit of the fish, or is it the fact that everything else you would be eating if you eat typically is worse? And so, you know, basically better and worse are relative terms. So if this is better than this, because this is horrible, eat more of this, less of this, you are trading up. But what if your baseline diet is a fantastic plant-exclusive diet and you start eating wild salmon? Well, I imagine then you're probably going to be bumping out some beans and some lentils and you know maybe some whole grains to make room for those extra calories. And Now, what about that? Is that better or worse? Well, honestly, we do not know. Again, we can look through three lenses and say, you know, first of all, I don't want you eating wild salmon because it's toxic to the salmon. Let, let the grizzly bears eat them. Let nature have its way and work out its balance, but let's not interfere. We're depleting the fisheries. We're destroying the planet. Let's stop doing that. Eight billion hungry homo sapiens cannot eat animals, period, end of story. It's bad for the animals, bad for biodiversity, bad for the environment. Okay. So if you say, you know, that there's evidence that the very best foods are plant foods, beans, lentils, etc. There's no evidence that we need to eat animal foods at all and you add in the benefits to biodiversity of the planet, it, it's a very strong argument. But the, the bias does tend to run away with people. And, and here's why it's such an insidious threat. Because credibility is not something you get back once you squander it. 
So if you make a false statement, no matter you know what ends it's serving, if you say you know the, the the ends justify the means here, I don't really have the science to say that extra virgin olive oil is toxic, but I want it to be because I have spent my life advocating for a low fat version of a whole food plant exclusive diet. I'm going to find one study out of dozens and dozens that supports my argument. I'm only going to cite that one. Well, then, you know, serious scientists who know the literature, and I'd like to count myself among them, having written multiple editions of a textbook on this topic and many review articles, I'm going to say not kosher, not legitimate. You know, you, you're, you're deceiving the audience. That is not a fair representation of the weight of evidence. And as soon as we make ourselves vulnerable to those charges, well, we've leveled the playing field between us and charlatans. And the charlatans may want to peddle a keto diet or, you know, a, a, a animal food meat centric diet. And, and we've given away the high ground, the high ground where we follow the weight of evidence. We should never do that. So it's really important to try and suppress our bias and apply the same standards of evidence-based adjudication to the opinions we own and the opinions we don't. And then just to circle back, you know, you mentioned how the, the, the diet studies play out. One of the easiest things in the world to do is design a diet study comparison that will come out the way you want it to, because you just have to build a straw man diet. And by the way, I've seen this work both ways. So we've seen a Mediterranean diet versus low fat. And, you know, and it kind of hints at the idea that the low fat diet is maybe it's an Ornish diet or an Esselstein diet, or, but really it's just a lousy low fat diet, either because it's not really low fat. They call it low fat, but it's not a plant predominant diet that pushes out dietary fats, it's 30% of calories from fat as opposed to 35%. And they call that low fat, make the comparison and the Mediterranean diet wins. And they tell us that, you know, the low fat plant based diet is no good. Or you, you could have a diet made up entirely of jelly beans and Coca-Cola and it would be really low fat. Wouldn't be good, but it'd be low fat. And that could be your comparison. So these straw man comparisons happen all the time and in any conceivable direction. You could also put together a really lousy version of the Mediterranean diet if you want that one to lose. You could have good paleo, bad vegan, good vegan, bad paleo, good low carb, bad low fat, good low fat, bad low carb, and it's been done over and over again. The rarity in this space is the scientist who will only compare diets that are put together with the same care. One of the people who stands out for me, uh, dear friend, fantastic researcher and you know really kind of an icon of how it ought to be done is Christopher Gardner at Stanford University I'm sure familiar to this audience but you know Christopher's done these kinds of studies where you know randomly assigned people to different diets and and looked for differences most recently and most famously perhaps diet fits where he was looking at the nutrigenomic contributions and found by the way that that genes predicted nothing about the response to low carb versus low fat but what he did, and this really is a departure from the way this literature often plays out, he put together the best possible version of a low-carb diet he could and the best possible version of a low-fat diet he could and compared those and looked at genetic markers and so forth. Called Diet Fits, if you don't know the study. The most, yeah, the most recent uh, paper was in JAMA in, I think it was the end of uh, 2018. Um, and for now, it's sort of the final word on nutrigenomics and basically says it's not ready for prime time. But anyway, back to your proposition. Yeah. So, so bias is really important and, and finding, listen, you know, if, if you're here and you're listening to us, you know, chances are you have a strong predilection for plant predominant or plant exclusive diets. You're right. 
you're right based on the weight of evidence. And if you prefer a low-fat version of that, fine. But you don't need to declare that extra virgin olive oil is a cardiotoxin to support that point of view. Just say, you know, I, I think you could have an optimal diet with more or less healthy oil, as far as I can tell. I prefer the, the non-oil or low-oil version. I prefer, I have a hero who advocates that version. I find her or him very convincing, and I'm choosing that. But you don't have to say everybody else is wrong, and you don't have to cherry pick your, your view of the evidence. I've looked at the evidence on extra virgin olive oil. We, we've also produced some in my lab, not extra virgin olive oil, but evidence. We've studied it. And um, overwhelmingly, the weight of evidence favors it. But even there, instead of what? You know, there, there really are no studies that say, let's just change that one variable. Let's have an optimal, low fat, plant exclusive diet with no added extra virgin olive oil. And then let's have an isocaloric, equally good plant-exclusive diet where we make room for the calories from extra virgin olive oil and compare those two. And then we have to choose when we add the calories from extra virgin olive oil, what gets pumped out? You know, is it some calories from whole grains? Is it some calories from nuts? Is it some calories from beans? You know, and it's got to be something. Those studies haven't been done. So again, I, I think we've got such a strong argument for plant-predominant to plant-exclusive diets anyway. We can afford to acknowledge what we don't know. I think, I think it's one of the, the most gracious and reassuring acts in all of science is when you hear somebody who knows a lot say, I don't know the answer to that one. I agree. The, the bit that I think will be interesting to sort of dive in a little bit further here is we're talking about fat and I guess fat as an umbrella term has been somewhat unfairly demonized and you're sort of taking us through uh, that there are different types of fat and they're not created equal and they have a different effect on the body. So what is it that people need to understand about saturated fat, monounsaturated fat, polyunsaturated fat? And I know at the start we said that it's far more important to be thinking about the foods, but this is for understanding why you're eating those foods and why a plant predominant or plant exclusive diet is is heart healthy, uh, in particular. Can you can you walk us through the science on on fats and where you've come to? Yeah, sure. To begin with, Simon. So the the, the idea that you know fat was unfairly demonized. Yes and no. Actually, you know, so we could go all the way back to Ansel Keys, middle of the 20th century. Keyes has been much misrepresented recently, in recent years, with revisionist history. Um, extraordinary researcher and made you know absolutely phenomenal contributions to nutritional epidemiology. But you know, in his time, they didn't know yet whether coronary disease was a, a, an inevitable consequence of aging or whether lifestyle affected it at all. And that's what Keyes went about studying. Uh, you know, the focus on fat just emerged. It was one of the major differences among the dietary patterns in the populations he studied in the famous seven country study. And they saw very different levels of coronary disease and he identified the key variables associated with that. And, and the issue was this, if most of the fat in most of the real world diets was coming from meat and dairy, you know, it's not like people were overeating walnuts or avocados. So if most of the fat was coming from meat and dairy and it was associated with significant burdens of chronic disease, you actually could make a fairly blunt argument that we should reduce our intake of fat because what you're referring to is we should reduce our intake of fat from the food sources where we're currently getting the fat, right? The problem was over time, 
big food essentially co-opted that message and invented something that didn't exist when Keyes began his work, low-fat junk food. So, you know, if, if we had reduced our fat intake and said, okay, so I want to eat less fat, what can I eat? Uh, vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils. I mean, you know, if we had shifted from the prevailing sources of fat to more of that stuff, we, our health absolutely would have improved phenomenally. We didn't. You know, we, 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 first of all, we didn't reduce our intake of fat very much. You know, we, we thought we did, but we really didn't. We just increased our calorie intake. But to, you know, to the extent that we made substitutions, we started eating low fat junk food. So we said, okay, I'll, I'll eat a little less pepperoni pizza and a whole lot of snack well cookies. And, you know, here we are fatter and sicker than ever. So, so fat, yes, it was vilified inappropriately, but not really. Because if you think about epidemiologic context, if you say do less of X, and you base that on the way people in the real world currently interact with X right now, it's a valid statement. If you then completely alter the way people interact with X, it becomes an invalid statement over time, but it's a very different set of circumstances. That's what happened with fat. Okay, so you know the, the reality now is, and to some extent then was, that what matters more than the total amount of fat is clearly the sources of fat. And I, I say sources rather than varieties because it, you know, I, I really do think it's a, a substantial disservice. We'll, we'll talk a little bit, just because you asked me to, about saturated fat, monounsaturated fat, polyunsaturated fat, and a little bit of the biochemistry. But it's a bit of a disservice because, for example, I could say saturated fat is bad, and so we want to avoid that. But there's saturated fat in extra virgin olive oil. There's saturated fat in avocado. There's saturated fat in walnuts. All naturally occurring fats are a mix of the different varieties of fatty acids. You, you basically need a biochemistry lab to purify a particular fatty acid. So saturated fat doesn't just occur in the foods we associate it with. It's not just in dairy and in meat. It's in nuts. It's in seeds. It's in seed oils. It's widely distributed in foods that contain any kind of fat. The issue, though, is concentration. And so we could say, okay, so I don't want to talk about saturated fat exclusively. I want to talk about concentration of saturated fat. We want to avoid foods that are highly concentrated in saturated fat. Okay, mostly true. Although debate about the specific health effects of the saturated fat in, say, coconut, uh, lauric acid, which appears to be fairly innocuous and maybe neutral in terms of both inflammation and atherosclerosis. What about the particular saturated fat that predominates in dark chocolate or cocoa? Uh, that's stearic acid. That's clearly innocuous, um, not inflammatory. And this has to do with the length of the carbon chain. So stearic acid is a long chain fat and just the way it's processed biochemically, it doesn't produce inflammatory cytokines and it doesn't contribute to atherosclerosis. And I'm not a good enough biochemist and this is not the right venue to get into the specific mechanistic pathways whereby a long chain saturated uh, fatty acid doesn't have the harmful effects of, of medium chain saturated fat. Uh, lauric acid is at the other end of the spectrum. It's a short chain saturated fatty acid. And it also is outside that middle range where most of the mischief happens. Okay. So the, the problems with saturated fat is just the way they're processed biochemically. Most of them are in that middle range of chain length. For those who don't know, by the way, saturated means no double bond. So any carbon all fats have a carbon backbone. Carbons can hold, they, they can hold four neighbors, uh, up to four neighbors. If they're not coupled to four neighbors, they're not saturated. So carbons can have double bonds between them, 
and you can break that double bond and the carbon can let go and grab a hold of something else. When you break the double bond, so there's only a single bond carbon to carbon, and then they're reaching out and holding four neighbors, they're fully saturated. Um, I, I hope that was clear enough. So monounsaturated fat has one pair of neighboring carbons with a double bond. Polyunsaturated fat has multiple pairs of neighboring carbons with double bonds. And saturated fat has no pairs of neighboring carbons with double bonds. They're all fully saturated. And it changes lots of things about the fat. It changes the melting temperature. It changes the smoke point. Saturated fat, for the most part, is solid at room temperature. Um, and again, this has to do with the conformational properties. We don't want to get into all of that. Here's the thing. We get most of our saturated fat from meat and dairy, and we get too much of it. Saturated fat's not bad. It's not evil. It's not like the Almighty came down and said, thou shalt not eat saturated fat. You know what's bad? What's reliably bad? Imbalance. Everything about nature, biology, physiology, whether it's the human body or the ecosystem at large, favors balance. Balance is good. Imbalance is bad. Imbalance is you're going to fall down, boom, and hurt yourself. Well, if your diet is prone to an excess of saturated fat, saturated fat becomes bad because more of it makes an excess worse. In other words, compounds the imbalance. N another good example, I'll come back to the other fats uh, momentarily, but another good example of this same issue, Simon, would be sodium. I, you know, I, I imagine we all tend to think of sodium or salt as bad. Why is it bad? Because most of us get too much. You get too much, getting more is indeed bad because it compounds or exacerbates an existing imbalance. But the simple reality is sodium is an essential nutrient. If you don't eat sodium, you become hyponatremic, you get confused, you have seizures, and then you die. Uh, hyponatremia is a really dreadful condition. I've seen and treated it many times in the hospital. There are a variety of reasons people get it. It's bad news. It really is. So you must consume sodium and you must consume a certain amount of sodium. So then what makes sodium bad? Why do we think of salt as bad? Because we eat too much. Too much is bad. Too little is bad. Imbalance is bad. And, and it, you know, I think if I'm going to leave one thing behind here today, it would be as you think about the, you know, the best lens to view and judge all of the issues you hear about diet, balance. Does it take us toward or away from a healthy, balanced, wholesome food, sensible combination, time-honored, weight of evidence, all that good stuff, but you know, toward or away from balance? Okay. So saturated fat tends to be pro-inflammatory. By the way, inflammation is not bad either. Being out of balance is bad. You need inflammation. It's what protects you from pathogens like COVID. It's what protects you from rogue cells that cause cancer. If you don't have inflammation, your immune system's not working. On the other hand, if you have too much inflammation, it puts you at risk for the cytokine storm that's likely to kill you if you get COVID and likely to give you chronic disease. Again, imbalance is bad. So we get too much saturated fat. We have too much inflammation. That's bad. And the other issue is fat. And, and this is why I don't like to focus on macronutrients. Uh, you know, for example, T. Colin Campbell in, in the China study tells us, forget about the fat. It's the animal protein that's the problem. Well, with all due respect to, to Colin, maybe it doesn't matter all that much. If we know that the foods are the problem, if you eat a lot of meat, eat a lot of dairy, you're in trouble. Maybe it's the saturated fat. Maybe it's the animal protein. Maybe it's both. Maybe it's the iron. Maybe it's all three. Maybe it's 17 things. Maybe it's 217 things. But we know what foods are the problem. Eat less of that. Eat more beans, lentils, nuts, seeds, vegetables, fruits, and whole grains. We know that'll fix it. Every you know whatever whatever the nutrient specific explanations may be. 
we know what the remedy is at the level of food. So, you know, again, I, I think the, the real message about saturated fat should be all of the world's best diets associated with the best human health outcomes are low in total saturated fat because they are relatively low in meat and dairy products and much higher in foods that contain vanishingly lesser amounts of saturated fat. Is the benefit because of the difference in saturated fat or is the difference because of, because of the foods? Probably both. But you know, again, if we focus on the foods, you fix not only the saturated fat, but everything else. Quickly, uh, just to f- finish a- answering your question, monounsaturated fat's fairly simple. Um, it tends to have favorable effects on inflammatory responses, on hormonal balance, on lipid levels. And famously, we associate that with uh, the Mediterranean diet because oleic acid, which is the predominant fatty acid in olive oil, is a monounsaturated fat. Polyunsaturated fat, just very quickly, colleagues I respect enormously, like Walter Willett at Harvard, will simply tell you that plant-derived unsaturated fats are good. Personally, I think it's, it's a bit more subtle than that. So I, I agree with 98% of everything Walter says, and he's been a mentor to me. But I think once you get the basics right, so in other words, you don't have a massive excess of saturated fat, you're not eating a lot of meat and dairy, you don't eat trans fat anymore, well, then, then you start to see differences in the balance among polyunsaturated fats. So omega-6 fat, which is you know basically in a lot of oils used in processed foods, it's in palm oil, it's in safflower oil, it's in sunflower oil, traditionally it's in soybean oil. Omega-6 fat is pro- pro-inflammatory. It's a, it's a polyunsaturated fat, probably better than saturated fat but it's pro-inflammatory. Omega-3 fat is another kind of polyunsaturated fat. And I won't talk about omega-9, which is yet another, but omega-3 is another polyunsaturated fat. It's anti-inflammatory. And I think the balance between those two really matters. And again, what's the best way to achieve the balance? Minimally processed foods, because most of the omega-6 coming into our diets is from highly processed foods. So all roads lead to the issues of balance is good and balance is bad get the foods right and the fats will take care of themselves. And how do you get the foods right? Mostly eat minimally processed vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds. And when you're thirsty, drink water. And if you do that, with or without modest additions of fish, eggs, poultry, meat, you know, because maybe maybe you have a Mediterranean diet that allows for that. But, you know, if those additions are modest, you will have a healthy intake of fat. And, And by the way, from my point of view, an optimal intake of fat could be high or low. And I, I would argue against my colleagues who, who, who make the, the counter argument, you've got to have a low fat diet. I would argue that you know, the, the, the massive evidence about the Mediterranean diet and specifically the blue zones, you know, so we can thank Dan Butner, but the five blue zone diets are very diverse. So we've got Ikaria, Greece, Sardinia, Italy, Okinawa, Japan, Loma Linda, California, and the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. Well, Ikaria and Sardinia have very high fat diets. Their Mediterranean diet's 45% of calories from fat, but it's plant-derived, a lot of extra virgin olive oil. Uh, Okinawa, Japan, and Loma Linda, California tend to be very low fat. Who cares? I mean, the issue is all of these five diets are real food, not too much, mostly plants. And again, when you get wholesome foods in in sensible, balanced, time-honored assemblies, I don't think a macronutrient threshold, whether you talk about carbohydrate, you talk about fat, helpfully distinguishes among them. And I think on the super low fat version of that diet you're talking about, I guess on paper versus uh, in practice is different from, from my experience. And even looking at some of the other clinical trials that have put subjects on the low fat vegan diet, 
where they actually end up in terms of total fat intake is in the realm of sort of 18 to 25% of total calories. So I'm not sure in the real world that sort of application that everyone can can follow that style diet anyway. That may well be, but you, you do raise a good point, Simon. So, you know, I think part of the enthusiasm from certain people for the low fat version of the plant exclusive diet is they've used it to reverse coronary artery disease. And, and they can make the argument, you know, we don't have studies of other diets showing that they too can regress coronary disease. And I would say that's true. But on the other hand, we have, for example, the Lyon Diet Heart Study, which was a secondary prevention trial where people who'd had an MI were randomized to continue a typical European, Northern European diet or a Mediterranean diet. And the reduction in total coronary events was as great as anything seen in the Ornish or Esselstein interventions. So they didn't happen to do serial angiography. So no, we don't have the pictures to show regression of atherosclerosis. But I think what you ultimately care about is did people have MIs or not? Did they have angina or not? Did they die or not? And the answer was the same roughly 70 to 80% reduction with a really good Mediterranean diet as has been seen with a low-fat vegan diet. So again, I, I think, and this is good news from my point of view, you know, if you are willing to admit what we don't know, you can say, okay, so, you know, there, there's what we know about optimal theme of healthy eating. And then there's my preference. I have a strong preference for this. You know, I spent my career studying diet X, so I prefer diet X over diet Y. My colleague spent her career studying diet Y, she may prefer diet Y. As long as these are variants on the theme, we can make our arguments. We ought to differentiate what we know from what we prefer. And then you at the receiving end of that information should do the same. You don't want to be dogmatic. You know, whatever your menu, there should be no dogma on it. And, and you should be able to say, you know, okay, I, you know, I'm, I'm listening to credible sources and I'm shopping the credible sources for what I like. And, you know, I think they're probably all credible. And then I'm going to, I'm definitely going to pay no attention to the people who are incredible, but I'm going to listen to the people who are credible. And from among the, the credible sources, I'm going to say, I like that one best. And I'm willing to say, I like it best without suddenly becoming dogmatic on the topic and saying, because I like it best, it is best. It's the one and only best. And if you say anything else, you're wrong and you're stupid. And, you know, I mean, this is the way we roll. It's got to stop. So, you know, again, I, I think if we focus on wholesome foods, sensible combinations, we would all readily reach the conclusion that macronutrient thresholds are just not a terribly useful concept. You can eat a low-fat diet. It could be terrible. You know, again, Coca-Cola and, and jelly beans would be a low-fat diet, really bad. Uh, you could eat a low-fat diet. It could be great. You could eat a high-fat diet. It could be an optimal Mediterranean diet. It could be beautiful. You could eat a high-fat diet, and it could be lots of pepperoni, and it could be terrible. You know, so again, and, and the same with higher or lower carbohydrates. So let's focus on the foods. Do you think that what you're talking about there in terms of how someone is actually following that diet and, and say, for example, a, a high-carbohydrate diet can you know, that can be done in a, a very whole food plant predominant way, or that can be done with a lot of junk food, as you say. And I guess everything that we're talking about here is this, you, you mentioned a theme and there's variations of this theme. Most of them tend to be low in saturated fat, but then whether the rest of the fat is is low or high remains to to be sort of unclear as to if one is definitely better than the other, right? But there is there is a sort of, uh, I guess, highly vocal section of nutrition science who 
uh, I would say, you know, somewhat regularly are, are trying to exonerate red meat and saturated fat. And, and we see this every year. There's been a couple of papers in the last few years. You've, you've certainly commented on them. There was the one in the annals and just recently in, uh, the, the Journal of American College of Cardiology, the, um, state of the art review. Right. So what is it about this camp and, and why do you think they're so adamant that saturated fat is not something that we should be looking at reducing in the diet? Um, and is it possible that they're sort of misunderstanding or misrepresenting what certain scientific studies are comparing against? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy. For, so first of all, if you want to be a nutrition nihilist, it's the easiest thing in the world. So, you know, essentially you look at variation in saturated fat from meat and you don't pay any attention to what you're comparing it to. So if, you know, people who eat less meat and saturated fat are eating more added sugar, it's a lateral move. It's, you know, basically there's more than one way to eat badly. And most people in the modern world seem committed to exploring them all. Uh, And, you know, you don't pay attention to the comparison. What you find is there's more than one way to get heart disease, diabetes, cancer, stroke, dementia. There's a really great study out of the Harvard School of Public Health, uh, the typical cohorts nurses health study, health professionals follow-up study, Lee et al., but uh, Frank Hugh, Walter Willett were involved, the usual suspects. Uh, over 100,000 people followed for 30 years, and they looked at people who reduced their intake of saturated fat calories over time, and then they did the right thing and asked the question, what replaced those calories? If saturated fat calories were replaced with trans fat calories, in other words, if people gave up butter and started eating stick margarine, this only was available years ago, but they actually went from the frying pan into the fire. Things got even worse, more heart disease, more bad outcomes. If they gave up saturated fat calories and replaced them with refined carbohydrate and added sugar, so in other words, a little bit less pepperoni and a lot more snack wells, lateral move, no difference. No difference in the rates of heart disease. There is more than one way to eat badly. They're all bad. Uh, however, if people gave up saturated fat calories from, again, meat, processed meat, dairy, processed dairy, and replaced it with whole grain calories, rates of heart disease plummeted. And if they gave up saturated fat calories, less meat, processed meat, dairy, processed dairy, and ate more unsaturated fat calories, nuts, seeds, olives, avocado, and to some extent fish and seafood, rates of heart disease plummeted. The instead of what question is absolutely essential to all of nutritional epidemiology, and it's so easy to engage in epidemiologic ledger domain where you pretend, you know, it's like a shell game. Hey, I'm not going to talk about instead of what, and I can produce any conclusion I want. Eggs are good, eggs are bad, dairy's good, dairy's bad, meat is good, meat is bad. So some of these people, I think, may just be naive and, and fail to appreciate that nutritional epidemiology cannot be treated like a drug versus placebo trial. There is no placebo diet. You can't do double blind studies of dietary patterns. And for that matter, it's really hard to randomize people to different dietary patterns for decades. So, you know, there's just, there's, there's a lot that may simply be misunderstanding. And then I think in many instances, there are ulterior motives. Uh, You find that a lot of the researchers who are most vociferous in their defense of meat or dairy have ties to the beef industry, have ties to the dairy industry. So you, 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 at at the beginning, you asked me to talk about the True Health Initiative, and I, I haven't yet. And then you just noted how, you know, there's this appearance of dissent. And the reality is there's massive agreement among experts worldwide. So in 2015, I was privileged to co-chair a conference in in Boston, Massachusetts with Walter Willett. It was sponsored by Old Ways, a nonprofit. 
And we called it Old Ways Common Ground. And we brought together dissenting nutrition scientists. So people who favored low fat, high fat, Mediterranean vegan, people who advocated for dairy, advocated for meat. And we, we had a few days of presentations, but in between the presentations, we all got together in the back room and tried to work out the common ground. And we pushed on one another. And this is all available online. You just Google Old Ways Common Ground. You can find all of the presentations, the slides, the videos, and the consensus statement. And there was a consensus statement. Because, you know, even the paleo people were willing to say, we need to eat a diet of mostly plants. You know, e- even if we debate that about what was best in the Stone Age, we're not in the Stone Age. There are 8 billion of us now. It changes the equation. Everybody agreed the best diets are mostly vegetables, fruits, whole grains, beans, lentils, nuts, and seeds, plain water when thirsty. Yeah, they, there was some disagreement. You know, I like high fat. I like low fat. I favor Mediterranean. I prefer vegan. Okay, fine. But, you know, we, we basically agreed about 90 to 95% of everything. The problem is all the media ever focus on is the 5%. Because, you know, if you and I are on sequential days and say the same thing about diet, they consider that boring. They want us to say opposite things. There's drama. You know, they want you to call me a moron and me to call you names and no, he's wrong. Only I know. And, you know, the more that goes on, yay, great TV, great drama. Everybody's confused, but they'll tune in tomorrow for yet another version of the answer. They'll keep buying fad diet books. They'll keep getting sick and needing drugs to treat the diseases that their food is causing. Big food wins, big pharma wins, big publishing wins, big media wins. You lose, but all of those industries win. Let's keep the confusion going. But it's a false confusion. So in the aftermath of that conference in 2015, and for a number of other reasons, I founded a nonprofit called the True Health Initiative. People can learn more about it at truehealthinitiative.org. And Essentially, I was testing the hypothesis that there was massive global consensus about the fundamentals of not just healthy lifestyle in general, but specifically healthy diet. And that hypothesis has been robustly validated. So we have a council of directors, the True Health Initiative, about 500 people, 45 countries. It's a who's who in public health. And they range in their personal preferences from paleo to vegan and everything in between. But all of them agree real food, not too much, mostly plants. You know, so some are adamant that it should be exclusively plants, some are not, but they, you know, the, the agreement that the theme of healthy eating is wholesome foods, plant predominant, time-honored assemblies, physical activity, avoid toxins, get enough sleep, manage stress, social interactions. Just the, the agreement's overwhelming and it's overwhelming about diet. So there's a pseudo confusion that prevails because there's a lot of money to be made by, um, pretending like we're confused about diet and offering people new ways to solve a problem that if we ever grew up and got serious, we would have solved long ago. Beautifully said. Coming towards the end of this one, I've got a few more questions uh, for you to round it out. Uh, Something that comes to mind is, you know, there, there certainly is a lot of listeners in this community who are not completely plant exclusive and they're, they're sort of downshifting and they're trading up and moving towards that direction if they are still eating animal products, what animal products would you recommend as the, the better choice? And, and, and by the way, I, I sympathize. So my wife is French, grew up in Southern France. So, and, and, and she's, she's been the, the cook in the cat's family home all these years, predominant cook, uh, brilliant cook. And, and by the way, if you want to find her recipes, quizinicity.com, freely available. Beautiful. We'll put those in the show uh, notes. Yeah. Okay, great. Quizinicity.com, cat's family greatest hits. 
but uh, you know, Southern French diet is a is a flexitarian Mediterranean diet. Um, so there, you know, there was there's there was some meat in her native diet. I I haven't eaten mammals uh, since I was a kid, and and for me, it had nothing to do with health or the environment or big issues. I just I had dogs. I loved horses, and said, how can these guys be family members and these guys be dinner? I just you know just didn't work. And then over the years, I have done exactly what many of you are doing. I have uh, moved more. So I ate poultry, I ate fish, and I ate dairy. Uh, and then I learned more and more about the abuses of animals by pe- you know, from people like uh, John Robbins and others. I uh, learned about factory farming, learned more and more about impact on the environment, said, I don't want to be any part of this. I, so I you know, gave up poultry, cut way back on dairy. And I thought fish is still good for me, but then you know we were depleting the fisheries, damaging the oceans, and I said, okay, it may be good for me, uh, but it's sure not good for the fish. So I am overwhelmingly vegan at this point. I, with, because of my wife's cooking, we occasionally have a little bit of dairy, uh, very little. I don't, I don't drink milk. I don't use butter, but there's a little bit of cheese. We try to favor um, goat and sheep, which has a lesser environmental footprint, but very little bit uh, in our diets. But you know, again, I'm not not that strict. And I very, very rarely eat fish and seafood now, but I still allow for some of that. So if you're going to eat any animal products, this would be the short list. First of all, you know, we all know the expression, you are what you eat. Well, the animals any of us eat are what they eat. So you want animals that were given the closest approximation to a native diet, native lifestyle, free range, pasture raised, that sort of thing. The, the notion that any animal would pay the uh, the ultimate price for the sake of our palates uh you know should should cause some qualms and minimally you want to know that you know it was a swift humane funny word really um but you know ethical as uh, to the extent possible that slaughter can be ethical but um you know essentially a a the kindest gentlest possible dispatch at the end of a life that was well lived um you know the idea of eating animals i mean for example veal is the flesh of calves that are you know never even allowed to move out of a pen until they're slaughtered in their infancy or chi- early childhood? I, I think that's unconscionable. So animals that were allowed to live, given a normal life, and um, and dispatched, and usually that means locally sourced, small farms. Ideally, you know the farmers. Uh, I think we have an ethical obligation if we're going to eat animals to make sure that there's no cruelty on the menu. And I think you know the the. Factory farming is cruel and abusive, and we should all vote no. I think sustainability is crucial. So if you're going to eat fish or seafood, you want to know, is this derived from a fishery that is being managed sustainably? You know, you don't want to be the person who eats the world's last swordfish or any particular kind of fish. So you really need to look. Seafoodwatch.org. Um, there are a number of other uh, sources. Actually, on my, my wife's uh, website, there's information about how various sites you can use to determine the sustainability of seafood. I think that's really important. So locally sourced, humanely, and again, I think that's a funny word, right? Humane means kind and gentle when humans are pretty much the worst. Uh, but anyway, it's the word we've got. We need a better word. <laughs> um, but humanely raised, uh, locally sourced, sustainable. And it really ought to be a small part of your diet, frankly. Uh, you know, I think one of, the, one of the most important considerations about animal food is that it's the volume of it that produces a lot of the trouble. You know, if, if we ate very, very little animal food, the environmental impact would be minimal. The issues of ethics would be minimal because the animals, you know, could, could free range. You know, it, it's the mass production that contributes to so many of the problems. So you don't want to be involved in sourcing any animal food in your diet that's mass produced that way. Yeah. And I, I think that 
brings me to to sort of my final question, which I'm not sure if if it's something that you've looked at, but there is very much this um, this current conversation around moving away from intensive animal agriculture and even traditional grazing systems to uh, what is defined as regenerative agriculture. And I've done a, a fair bit of reading on this. It certainly seems like from a, a soil point of view, it seems like it is advantageous and better for, for managing land. One thing that concerns me with, with this message is that it doesn't seem to be coming with the additional message of if we're moving away from intensive systems and, and traditional grazing to this regenerative ag, that that is going to mean a significant reduction in total meat available globally and thus people need to be shifting their diet to more plant-based diets. Beautifully summarized, Simon, beautifully summarized. So yeah, I'm tremendously interested in that topic. And exactly, um, you often hear the regenerative agriculture argument from, so you're making an argument that we should be overwhelmingly plant predominant, if not plant exclusive, and somebody in your audience will say, what about regenerative agriculture? As if that's a rebuttal. No, no, we should eat meat because these systems, you know, there's animal husbandry and plant agriculture and they're combined and it regenerates the soil. And But you're absolutely right. The best available evidence, and we need more evidence, we need papers looking at what, and, and I was working on a project to try and get this done and we, we didn't quite get over the finish line. But if you have a, a fully regenerative self-contained system, how does that play out in terms of the sustainable distribution of calories produced for a population in terms of plants, different kinds of plants and animals? And the answer would be, as best we can tell, a massive shift toward plant predominance because, you know, obviously you're not, you're not raising animals in large numbers to eat them in a regenerative system. You know, you're, you're deriving some dairy from them. And as they age, you're, you're basically siphoning off the, the older animals and they, they do become a source of a little bit of meat in your diet and they're replaced as the younger animals grow up and there's a natural cycle to it, but you're eating very little meat and you're eating relatively little dairy. So I think you summarized it beautifully. So yeah, I think you know, um, looking at soil as the foundation of our entire food production system and learning how to nurture and cultivate healthy soil, I, you know, I, think that, that, I think that's a real crucial insight. And that does tend to emanate from the dialogue about regenerative agriculture. But all too often, in my experience, at least regenerative agriculture is misused to imply it's okay for us all to keep eating meat because that means regenerative systems and regenerative systems are good. And that's a complete uh, misrepresentation. You're exactly right. Um, first of all, there, there are a lot of places where the optimal efficiency in food production would be crop rotation. You can actually return nutrients to the soil by doing crop rotation. You don't need animals to do it. So you can regenerate the soil by rotating a variety of plant foods that use and replenish different nutrients. And in many places that are not ideal for grazing, that would be the way to go. In places where there's a real opportunity for grazing, a regenerative system of mixed agriculture absolutely could be part of a comprehensive agricultural reform. And, and that's where I think it does make sense to think about the, the, the principles we're pursuing. So we want kinder, gentler treatment of animals. We want to safeguard the beauty of this planet. The, we want to stabilize the climate, preserve our aquifers, nurture biodiversity, all of that. And we want diets that are good for human health. That doesn't mean everybody has to be vegan. And in fact, probably, you know, the, the, the total efficiency of the global food production system would be enhanced if we allowed for these islands of regenerative agriculture that were mixed and then crop rotation and so forth. 
But the argument or the notion that regenerative agriculture means we can eat lots of meat, absolutely false, totally misleading. Um, you will tend to hear it in that context. It's wrong. So I, again, I think you did a great job summarizing that. Well, David, eloquent as always. Thank you so much for, for coming on. First time on the show. And, and as I said at the start, a guest that I've really been looking forward to connect with. So I think the the information you've shared today has been tremendously valuable to both myself and the community. So thank you for that. Well, pleasure to be with you, Simon. And if I may throw in a, a pitch here at the end. So you mentioned the book of more than 700 pages. Uh, that's the truth about food. That's sort of my magnum opus. Uh, and it's everything I know and how and why I know it. And the proceeds from that one all go to support the True Health Initiative, the truth about food. Uh, why pandas eat bamboo and people get bamboozled. And my latest book is a joint effort with Mark Bittman, a famous food writer for the New York Times, uh, tremendously knowledgeable about food production systems and a great cook, by the way. He wrote How to Cook Everything. It's called How to Eat, All Your Food and Diet Questions Answered. And that one's pretty uh, freshly available. It actually came out right at the start of the pandemic. Horrible time to publish a book. But if I may, uh, you know, people are interested in more, those would be the two most current sources, the truth about food and how to eat. I'll put both of those into the show notes as well. And if if anyone would like to sort of connect with you or read your work online, is LinkedIn the, the best place to find you? Uh, you can go to my website uh, and all my all my social uh, media contact information is there, davidkatzmd.com. Uh, so it'll link to LinkedIn, Facebook, I don't do much with Instagram, uh, Twitter, and um, compilations of my writing and um, presentations, media appearances, you know, all that stuff. So that's a good place to go. All right. Thank you, David. Let's uh, Let's do this again soon. I'd like to, Simon. Thanks so much. Real pleasure. There we go, friends. Hope you enjoyed that and walk away feeling a little more confident about the changes you've made to your diet or perhaps the changes you plan to make. You know, sometimes I get shot down by certain fragments of the vegan community for saying that we will never truly be able to say that a vegan diet is the most optimal diet for human health. I think this episode summarizes why I'm I'm not willing to say that. I totally agree with David. A a vegan diet done well ticks all the boxes for an extremely healthy diet. But you cannot say that science has proven that to be more optimal than a high-quality plant-predominant diet. The kicker for me is that a plant-exclusive diet, or as close to as possible, really does tick all the boxes. It's certainly best for the planet and animals. And those two arguments are strong enough to give it a go or work towards it for everyone that's in a position to do so. All right, we made it. That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me again and sticking around until the end. If you want to support the show, the very, very best thing you can do is leave a review on the Apple Podcast app. Next week, I have Bruce Frederick on the show. He's the founder of the Good Food Institute and a pioneer in the plant-based meat and clean meat space. Another interesting conversation about nutrition that hones in on the future of food. Meet me back here in a week and we can enjoy that one together. Don't stand me up.